Welcome, everybody, to the Jimmy Tingle Show. I am Jimmy, and I am so excited to have our guest today because over 25 years in comedy, my guest today, Gary Goldman, Boston's own, has established himself as an eminent performer and peerless writer, and I can attest to that personally. I've seen him in action. It is no wonder the New York Times wrote Gary is finally being recognized as one of the country's strongest comedians. He has made countless television appearances both as a comedian as an actor and is one of only a handful of comedians to perform, get this, on every single late-night comedy program. Letterman, The Tonight Show, Fallon, Conan. What was the other one? Seth Myers. <laughs> Seth Myers, Jimmy Kimmel, and today, Tingle. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> he has completed the circle with The Tingle Show. <laughs> He's made four masterful television specials, including his most recent universally acclaimed stand-up special for HBO, The Great Depression. This is an awesome show, ladies and gentlemen. A tour de force look at mental illness, which is equal parts hilarious and inspiring. And again, I've seen that, and I agree, hilarious and inspiring. And in 2019, he appeared in the international blockbuster Joker, he will next be co-starring with Amy Schumer, the lovely Amy Schumer, in an upcoming Hulu comedy series, Life and Beth, and is currently writing a memoir, a memoir, brothers and sisters, for Flatiron Books, tentatively titled K-12. through Ladies and gentlemen, I want to show you this clip from the HBO special, The Great Depression, and then I want to welcome our friend Gary Goldman to the show. Please roll this clip from HBO's The Great Depression. I have no idea how this is going to go. I mean, is it possible that this subject isn't even funny? It was a long time since I shot my last special. I got very sick with the depression. I grew up in the, in the 70s, and the only antidepressants we had access to was snap out of it. <laughs> and what have you got to be depressed about? That was the second leading brand of antidepressants. <laughs> Happy a kid you couldn't find. Always had a smile on his face. So how could I detect anything? This is a book I wrote in, in second grade. It was called The Lonely Tree. And to anybody with a small amount of psychology knowledge, you would know this was a, a, a cry for help. <laughs> but I know my depression is in remish. And I'm only comfortable talking about it now because I have come out the other side. I wanna be your Therapy saved my life. I believe I broke my therapist. Yeah, I was leaving his office and I was shutting the door and I heard him go. Some days you'll feel great. It's interesting because millennials take so much flack from middle-aged men talking about participation trophies. Their argument is, how are they gonna learn how to lose? How are they gonna learn how to lose? Oh, they'll get some practice. <laughs> you familiar at all with life? Take it as it goes. Take it as it goes. Please welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Boston's own, my friend, soon to be yours, Gary Goldman. Hey, Gary. Hi, Jimmy. Thanks, man. I hadn't seen that clip in a while. I'm, I'm welling up a little because that... That song is actually, it was uh, written and performed by a friend of mine, somebody I met during the 
the process of writing and, and touring that this guy named Andy Frasco, and he struggles with some mood disorders. And, and he wrote that and it's a song sort of to himself. Mm. And it resonated with myself and the director and somebody I, I put together the special with. It really hits me. So thanks for, for putting that on here. Of course, Gary. Well, it's a wonderful song and the special is phenomenal. And I have to tell you, seeing your mother in the special, first of all, I'm a huge fan, a friend, but a huge fan. And my wife and I went to the show when you were working this out before you filmed The Great Depression. We saw it live at the Wilbur Theater. And after the show, we were all out on the sidewalk and there was about, I'd say, 10 or 15 comics there that had just come on their own, you know, individually. And we were all out on the sidewalk conversing about how great the show was and who walks out but your mother and I, and we all and we all surround her and we're telling her how wonderful it is and she was telling us how wonderful it was she loved it she uh, couldn't believe it she was so happy and so proud and we were all around her and it was just great to see her there meeting her in person and then seeing her in the film is fantastic it was a wonderful moment to see all the comics come out and to see your mom there. And I know you had family members, etc. So that was a, a really, really special moment. But I have to ask you, Gary, the process of taking a subject like that, of, of depression, and going to the next level, not only coming out publicly about it, but to process that through comedy for people. When you were doing that, in the first scene in that clip, you're saying, I don't even know if this is going to be funny. What was going through your mind? At that point in the process, I had been talking about my depression for a long time. Mm -hmm. That night, I was going out to talk about, for the first time, having had electroconvulsive therapy. Mm -hmm. So we were going to get me talking about electroconvulsive therapy on camera for the first <laughs> time. And that I was concerned with because I really, I was convinced people were going to be like, ah, oh no, <laughs> this is really scary and we're embarrassed for him and please don't talk about this and in reality they weren't upset by it it didn't it didn't bum them out as long as it was funny they were fine with it and it was kind of funny the first night and then i figured out different ways and i i mean i learned from watching you and the other guys over the years i mean that's the great thing about about coming up in boston is you would see guys who had been doing it a while, keep doing it and improving and mm. doing well, but also doing things that didn't work. Yep. And not lashing out at the crowd. <laughs> Here's a good thing is sometimes you do a joke and it doesn't work and you know, it's not me, it's the crowd. That's important. And then sometimes you have to know, oh, it's, it's the joke, it's not good enough. I need to change it. <laughs> So you need to learn you yeah. need to learn that. So it's it's very difficult, but also you were always there to answer questions such as how do I know when to just give up on a joke or or to keep doing it? I mean, the guys were just so generous, you and and mm -hmm. Brian Kiley and Barry Crimmins and and we're we're just so generous. We're all standing on the shoulders of giants because as much as we love to get laughs from the audience, but what you really want is to be appreciated by the people that you appreciate, yes. the other comedians. 
I agree, Gary. And uh, thank you so much for the kind words. And I have to tell you, the Boston scene, you're right. It makes you better because there are a lot of good people who are pretty generous with their feedback. But also, you have to go after them on stage. So you have to... (laughs) Yes. Your game has to be brought up a few notches if you're going to follow these folks. So you do learn. It's like basketball. I know you play a lot of basketball. When you play with good people, you get better. Yes. And that's how the scene here in Boston was. And in terms of the jokes, when do you know it's so hard to determine? Oh, geez, that joke didn't work. Maybe it's them. And then after like 10 times, maybe it's me. Maybe it is the joke. I'm 0 for 10. I've been up at the plate 10 times with this joke. I got to change something. (laughs) Maybe the premise isn't quite right. (laughs) Right. But I have to tell you, one of the things that I, I love about what you do and the way you do it is you would come into the comedy studio, and I appreciate this. You're in your 50s. I'm in my 60s. And I, I am easily two to three times older than everybody in the audience at these, at these young clubs. And you would come in as a veteran comic, and we'd be constantly trying new things, constantly trying, constantly working out material. And all of that material in the Great Depression, a lot of it, I saw you worked out at the comedy studio. So one of the things that I love about you, not only the intelligence and the creativity, but is the work ethic. And where do you get that, Gary? I mean, are you using like your sports training to just get better at comedy and going out there every night and uh, practicing? Absolutely. I mean, for me, it was sports. And I'm sure there are a number of other areas where if you have a if you have a child, you can instill this in them. But I found with sports, the great thing that sports teaches you is that if you go out every day and you put in some effort, you will notice improvement. I look back on fondly now because it's interesting was that I had, I had moved back in to my mom's house because I had, I'd been hospitalized in the psychiatric ward. I didn't think I was going to be able to continue in comedy. I was concerned about paying rent and things like that. So I wanted to sort of uh, reset my life. So I moved back into my mom's house in Peabody, Massachusetts, where I grew up. I was sleeping in the same bed that I slept in in, in high school. And it sounds nuts to me now, but at the time, it seemed like a reasonable move. I put next to my bed a a quote from the playwright and author Samuel Beckett, and it said, uh, try, uh, ever try, tried, ever failed, try again, fail again, fail better. And that relieved me of all the pain of a joke that doesn't work, which used to cripple me. I would bomb on stage and I wouldn't be able to get out of bed the next day. And then it became, no, bombing on stage is how you're going to get better. You're going to miss a thousand shots, but the next day you'll miss 999 shots and the next day, 900 shots and, and you'll get better. So trying out new jokes and new approaches. So if I get one sentence that works the next day, maybe I'll get two sentences. Well, it really shows Gary and it has worked for you. And I know the feeling when you're talking about You just want to get on stage because stage time is crucial. You can write all you want in your room and the notebook or whatever. The test is, how is this going to be received by 100 strangers or 500 strangers? I was on with Colin Quinn a couple of weeks ago. He said the same thing. He goes, I hate bombing. I hate getting up there and trying stuff and it doesn't work. There's no feeling as bad. It's, it's like being at the dinner table. For those of you who are not comics, it's like being at the dinner table or in front of like maybe your company outing 
you say something you think is hilarious and everybody else looks at you like, wow, that was really out of place. I can't believe, did you hear what he just said? Yeah. You, you cringe and you, you retreat yeah. into yourself. Yeah. But anyway, that's what you got to do. And it's like lifting weights or doing push-ups or running laps or whatever it is. You got to keep doing it to, to improve. Another one of the things that I love about you is not only the work ethic, but you're very generous with sharing what you've learned. And you were doing something called tips on Twitter. Tell me about tips on Twitter. And you did like hundreds of them, right? Yeah, I did. I think 366. Wow. It started on like December 30th, I think 2018 or 19. Yeah, I drank a lot of coffee and I get very ambitious. And, and I said to my wife, what do you think that people would say if I offered a tip a day about comedy? And she said they would love it. And so I, I said, okay, for the next year, I'm going to give a tip every day. I thought people would say, well, who the hell are you to offer this? But then people really embraced it. I was really pleased by that because I'm insecure about those things. So that was really nice. I was feeling very good. I had been recovering gradually mm -hmm. from my very deep depression. And so I wanted a way to, to show gratitude and give back for the immense amount of help and guidance I had been given by people like you and Paul D'Angelo and Don Gavin, Steve Sweeney and Kenny Rogerson and, and Lenny Clark and, and Tony V and Barry Crimmins and, and Bobcat. I mean, so many, so many Boston guys when I was coming up and with the Great Depression, Judd Apatow yeah. reached his hand out and helped me up. So, I, I mean, none of us do it by ourselves. We, we all have so much help. I mean, the guy who tells you he did it by myself is just a, either a liar or a, a very selfish narcissist. You can't do it by yourself. Uh, what did you call them? What was the official name of them? I called them Gullman's Tips. Gullman's Tips. But I have to tell you, Gary, I can't tell you how many people saw that, other comics, and go, aren't these awesome? The great thing about those tips were you could apply it not only to comedy, but you could apply it almost to anything. It's like, you know, write more. That was like your big thing. Every tip you would say, write more, write more. And it, it encouraged me to write more and encouraged a lot of people to write more. And it was always really just very insightful and just helpful. Yeah, I, I think that the other thing with teaching is that a lot of times you're also reinforcing your own lessons, the, the things you need yeah. to know. So it, it also got me to do the things that I had lost track of. Like, for instance, one of my favorite ones is be the comedian you would want to see. Yeah. I mean, everything I'm looking at in your set is a reflection of what kind of comedy you enjoy, which is a person who takes it seriously, mm -hmm. a person who puts on a show and, and a person who is professional and is straightforward. And who do I compare this to? And I, I say, oh, I don't know anybody like this. Mm -hmm. That was the great thing about Boston comedy. When I was coming up, you would see everyone had their own style. And then you would see the different comedians you would be and you would say, oh, this is this is somebody who's a disciple of Jimmy Tingle. This is a disciple of Gavin. This is a disciple of Lenny. This is a disciple of, of Crimmins. And it was so interesting. Yeah. Gary, it's so interesting that you say that because when I was coming up back in the day, when we all first started, a year was like a long time to be ahead of somebody. So like, for example, yes. so example, I started in 1980, but Barry Crimmins probably started maybe 77, maybe 78 in upstate New York. 
Lenny started, I think, 78, 79. They had a couple of years on me. So your point about Gavin and Sweeney and all these guys, I was the daytime bartender at the Ding Ho. Right. I didn't study comedy or go to school for it. These were like the teachers. So inadvertently, my first year, they go, whoa, geez, that sounds too much like Gavin. That's like, that's like Kremens. That's like Clark. So you really, you don't want to copy them, but you are influenced by them and you eventually find your own voice. That was my experience as the bartender at the Ding Ho when all those guys were coming up. And Stephen Wright's another one, of course, and Paula Poundstone. Just fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous comics. Mike McDonald, Mike Donovan, all these guys. Right. They were just wonderful. But Gary, I want to know about your writing process because I know you're working on a, a new show now and you're touring that. First of all, Carnegie Hall. You sold out Carnegie Hall. How was that? It was perfect in every way. It's interesting because you know from going on TV shows that you get to the building and you and you think, well, everything's much smaller than I had pictured yeah. and it's a lot older and they haven't really kept up with maintenance. <laughs> but everything about Carnegie Hall is like it's been either polished or refurbished in the last 48 hours. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. I, I mean, it, it felt like I was the first person to ever set foot in my dressing room. It was it was extraordinary. I walked out there, I had the chills. The audience was so appreciative and, and I just had uh, the most extraordinary time. And with regards to my process, I try not to spend the day listening to music or podcasts or books or anything in my ears. I try to sort of ruminate over, over the jokes I'm working mm -hmm. on and think, and then I'll write things down. The other thing is that I, I spend a lot of time transcribing shows and while I'm transcribing them, I'll pause and think, oh, I, I think a better word here is a synonym for this rather than this particular word. My favorite Mark Twain quote is the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. <laughs> so... One word can make the entire yeah. difference in the joke. So I'll say, no, the best word right here. So I'll change that and then try it out that night. I mean, that's the beautiful part of living in New York City is that I can go on at least once each night and try out a new joke. And then over six months, nine months, I'm I'm on the road and tweaking and, and adding things. And this came from living in Los Angeles where I would only get two shows a, a week. I didn't want to take a chance of trying out a new joke and having it bomb. Yeah. So I would add something new to an old joke that worked. If it bombed, it was just a sentence. And so I would just make really long jokes. So that was my process. <laughs> and then my process became my style. So I have these very long jokes. So people will, will think of me as the guy who tells really long jokes, but that just became a thing where I didn't want to I didn't want to look bad for too long. Yeah, man, it's tough. Why, Gary, why could you only get on a couple of times a week in L.A. compared to New York? There were too few clubs and too many celebrities. The good thing was that I enrolled in, a, in an acting program, so I would take acting classes four nights a week, and that was helpful. It kept me sane, and it gave me a, a social life because the actors I would was involved with they would go out to eat after the classes and so i had friends and that was helpful but otherwise i would have lost my mind <laughs> right i always found the la audiences tough yes the new york audiences they're centered 
They're in New York. Yeah. They know who they are. They know where they live. Yeah. They know where they came from. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're in the mix. You know, they're in the mix of like they're yeah. walking everywhere. Not everybody's in a car. Yeah, they're on the train. Yeah. There's a communal feeling in New York. L.A., it's just a different vibe. It was just hard to get that warmth from them. That was my experience anyway. No, definitely. When you're working out in New York, where do you go? I go to Comedy Cellar, yep. Gotham Comedy Club. That's just really nice club in the Upper West Side called the West Side Comedy Club. And then there are a few places in, in Brooklyn that I go to. I go to uh, Union Hall. I go to this place called Littlefield. And then this other place called the Bell House. Mm -hmm. Brooklyn is really terrific. I mean, every place you go now has some sort of uh, vibe attached to yeah. it. But I never find that's the case. Like they're, oh, these are only hipsters and they only laugh at jokes that are this. But that's not really the case. I find that you can't be racist and sexist anywhere, but that's not a bad no, thing. No, that's a good thing. The culture's evolving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. And you know what's cool? One of the clubs here in Boston, we are both are big fans of the comedy studio. I go, yes. I work out there all the time. I go up to Giggles, uh, Mike Clark and Lenny Clark's room yeah. up there on Route 1. I go to the open mics and I love it because, like I said earlier, I'm by far the oldest usually the oldest comic on the bill and like i said sometimes twice as old as the audience but if you can make these people in their 20s laugh it's like you said they're not judgmental about age or anything just be funny just go out and yeah. make them laugh and most people are very open to whatever you got to say just do the job yeah i think that carlin was able to reach young people college people at every point in his career mm -hmm. into his 70s because he kept an open mind and he kept going to the clubs and he never became obsolete and he didn't do that kids these days humor right and i think that's the difference because the kids these days humor is not is not new no every generation has whined about the kids <laughs> these days and it's a nail in your coffin yeah, it's a little cranky <laughs> <laughs> There's a famous quote from Socrates who said, I fear to leave the future in the hands of the youth of today. This is Socrates, whatever that was. That was like 1000 BC or something, whatever it was. Yes. <laughs> Socrates, a little cranky, Sock, a little cranky. <laughs> be like Plato, be more forward thinking or Aristotle. <laughs> yeah. The kids are all right. <laughs> but uh, tell me about the new show, Gary. The show I'm working on now is basically about the unprecedented in income inequality in our mm -hmm. country as it relates to my upbringing when there were, I mean, insanely rich people, but the disparity wasn't as poisonous. I've also always been fascinated by class and I've always been quite resentful of the rich, which is really a, a character flaw in me, but also a character flaw in a lot of rich people in that I think they behave like um, like pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, one of the funniest things I remember from you working out at the studio, at the comedy studio, I was not that familiar with your work there, and I, I got more familiar with it by seeing you there. You say, I'm from a very rare... An unusual sect of Judaism. <laughs> I'm from a very unusual sect of Judaism. Poor. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> the audience oh, would laugh. It was really hilarious. Tell us about that. Because you talked about wanting to play hockey as a kid and your parents yeah. discouraging you from it. It's interesting because there's kind of a shame of belonging to a group of people who are known stereotypically for having something and then not having that thing. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, well, this is the thing is that my family was obsessed with material things and talked and longed for wealth. And we were broke all the time. And my mother would make jokes about it. She would say, the next time I marry, I'll marry for love, the love of money, which was probably an old <laughs> Mae West joker or something like that. And, and we would play the lottery and we would dream. And, and my mother would take us for rides in neighborhoods where there were big homes and mansions. And we would long for this. And it, and it just, it warped our values. And we had these adages, like it's just as easy to marry a rich woman. And I mean, luckily my father's values were very good. And I, and I think it might be an immigrant thing mm -hmm. where immigrants are, are so used to financial insecurity that be, they become workaholics mm. and become devoted to their jobs, expressing their success through material, material gains. And I think rather than guaranteeing happiness, I think it gets in the way of happiness. I've never been really rich, but there's been no amount of money where I've ever felt financially secure. I've been much poorer than I am now and just as happy. Mm -hmm. It's always been when I've felt that I had a good relationship and good friends and that I had a dream or uh, something that I was working towards that I was happy about and hopeful about. Right. This new tour that you're working on, I saw excerpts of it out in Beverly. It's interesting that you're calling it the Born on Third Base Tour hilariously chronicling your impoverished childhood on food stamps, free lunch, and welfare checks while skewing the current tale of two city-esque wealth gap. How is that working for you? Do you find it cathartic? Do you find like you're making your points as well as getting laughs? I get a lot of laughs. What I need to do now is put together the narrative that I had in the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. With the Great Depression, I was able to use the documentary footage to put together the narrative of, of how I went from breakdown and hospitalization to my recovery. Here, I, I would like to explain maybe what we're up against and perhaps what we can do individually, which is why I think I, I, I shared with you the charity that I, I'm dedicated to. It's called givewell.org. They have a list of charities that save the most lives. They've figured out that there are certain charities that the percentage of your money goes to saving lives, like doesn't go to the overhead, right. doesn't go to paying the, the CEOs. And so the, the best money can go to malaria nets in Africa to keep kids from getting malaria right. and dying. There's the Helen Keller International, which gives kids vitamin A supplements so that it cures blindness. So basically I give most of my charity to these organizations because they do the most good That's with it. That's great, Gary. And that givewell.org will be the Humor for Humanity charity for this particular show. Every show that we do, we try to have a 
an organization that we pitch and promote and highlight. So if people want to give and have the means to, we try to encourage that because this is a, quote, Humor for Humanity production. And you know about Humor for Humanity. I think that I started it about 10 years ago, and it's going to another level now because we can get on Zoom and we don't have to do live shows. We can do shows like this and interviews, and you can reach, theoretically, a lot more people than the live performances. GiveWell.org is our Humor for Humanity nonprofit that we're supporting uh, this week. So that's a great one, Gary. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I want to tell you how much of an example and someone I, I admire so much you are because you obviously your, your comedy means so much to me, but your life work and, and your community outreach and when you ran for lieutenant governor and your, your work as an advocate and more than just a, a the comedian, you're a valuable member of the community, the comedy community and the, the Commonwealth community. And you're such a, a great role model for us younger and getting older people. <laughs> well, thank you, Gary. And for the folks watching today, Gary was so generous. Gary did a, a fundraiser for me at the Burren in Davis Square, Somerville, that great Irish pub, the Burren. In the back room of the Burren, they have a, a wonderful stage and an entertainment venue. And uh, we did a fundraiser when I ran for lieutenant governor. And Gary, I think you'll be proud to know, first time running for lieutenant governor, you did that benefit. Paula Poundstone did a fundraiser for me. We got 213,313 votes. First time running, 213,313 votes. Came in second place, Gary. Second place. Extraordinary. That's the good news. The bad news, Gary, two-person race. <laughs> we got the silver medal is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's extraordinary, Jimmy. I don't know if you, you're familiar with Ezra Klein at all, but he just had this uh, woman on who... I think she has a, a book about the importance of running for something, yeah. running for anything. Just these these local races are so significant and so important. I just did a podcast last night where I was talking about the importance of elected officials. I think one thing we have to do as a society is kind of chill on the demonization of like elected officials and people. You know, people are trying their best. We're in a pandemic. They're trying their best. I just am going to try to advocate for people and help the people I see in office who are trying to do the most good for the most people in the most logical way and just try to promote peace and, and justice and fairness in, in our society. And I know you feel yeah. the same way. Every place that you're going to is at GaryGoleman.com. I think for um, the New England people, I'll be at, uh, there's a Ridgefield, Connecticut date. There's a Foxwoods date and i'm working on uh providence i i think as well so that that will be really fun I, man i i love being back out on the road i mean we take it for granted there's nothing like being back on stage it takes a while it's been taking a while to get back out there but the audiences love it as well the audience i find are very appreciative would you agree yes i mean i can't do the meet and greets anymore right. I'm, I'm concerned about meeting so many people but the feedback online is, has been more uh, robust than usual. That's awesome. Well, Gary, thanks a million for joining us today. And again, we're honored to have you. You're a real power of example, and not only in the comedy world, but in the mental health profession, in the mental health world. And people are, who are in recovery or suffering from depression or trying to overcome any kind of addiction. The show that's on HBO, The Great Depression, I highly recommend it. There'll be a link to that. 
in our show notes. There's a link to givewell.org in our show notes. That is the Humor for Humanity charity that we're supporting with this broadcast. And there'll be a link to garygullman.com. You can see him in Ridgefield, Connecticut. You can see him in Foxwoods, Connecticut. And you can see him hopefully out in uh, Rhode Island soon in Providence. And we will love you when you come back to Massachusetts. We'll probably see you at the Wilbur again. My wife and I have gone to the last two or three shows that you did at the Wilbur. My wife, Catherine, says hello. She loves you as well. It's so funny, Gary. I'll come home from work. I'll be out doing my sets. And I'll come home. And my wife is watching on Netflix. She's watching <laughs> Gary Goldman while uh, she's watching John... Mulaney? Mulaney. Yeah. Loves you. Loves John Mulaney. Loves Jim Gaffigan and Sebastian. Terrific. Sebastian, Goldman, Gaffigan, <laughs> and great Mulaney. Taste. And I'm, I come home and I'm seeing her watching these every night. And I say, I can't believe it. We've been married 26 years. My wife is seeing other comics. <laughs> I try to keep uh, my head up, Gary. I try to be proud. I said, honey, I worked out a new bit. Come down and see me at the comedy studio. <laughs> oh, man. great taste. Yeah. I love it. She has great taste. She does. She's the greatest. And one of the reasons we hit it off, Gary, she has a wonderful sense of humor. And she laughs yeah. at stuff. We laugh all the time. And she's really, really funny. And we just love you. We think the world of you. And she goes, he's so adorable. He's so adorable. Uh, I said, what about me? What about me? I'm the Bonnie Rubble of comedy. What about me? <laughs> oh, Jimmy. Jimmy. Jimmy, Barney Rubble. It's the Barney Rubble of comedy. He was a comedic actor. One of our best. It's great to see you, Gary. Continued success. I love, you. I love you too, man. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. And we'll put all the stuff in the notes. Continued success. Stay strong. Stay safe. Thank you so much. All right. Say hi to Catherine. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>